0: Good morning again. I hope everybody is doing well. Listen, today we're starting a brand new series called But I Say. Uh, This is a continuation of a series that we're doing uh, kind of through the year, uh, through the Sermon on the Mount called Uncommon Kingdom. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is simply this. It's Jesus uh, explaining what the kingdom of God looks like, what he's ushering in, And showing us what kingdom citizens live like, helping us understand our desperate need for grace, a a need for a new heart. And then once we receive his grace and a new heart, he's showing us what we look like as citizens of his kingdom, even now in this broken world. We started the series by talking about what's called the Beatitudes, the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. And we just simply said this, the Beatitudes are the clothing that identifies us as the followers of Jesus, as citizens of the kingdom. It's what uh, causes us to stand out and be sought and light in this broken world. And this morning, we're gonna be jumping into a brand new section, and we're, we're gonna be looking at how the gospel, the next several weeks, how does the gospel transform my everyday life? How does it transform the way in which I live, specifically in relationships with those around me? And so this is where we're gonna be over the next few weeks. Uh, And so if you got your Bibles, grab them, go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start reading in a moment in verse 20, but let me set up the context of the series and where we're going to be over the next few weeks. Um, In Matthew chapter 5, when you get into verse 17, there's a transition in the teaching. Jesus moves to kind of give a summary of what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And here's what Jesus says. He says, hey, I've not come to abolish the law. I've not come to destroy the law the Old Testament or the expectations that God has for us. I've come actually to fulfill it. In fact, none of God's word is going to pass away until all is fulfilled. And here's simply what Jesus is saying. Say, how does he complete the law? Well, Jesus completes it by revealing it to us. So he has come to help us understand fully of what God desires for us. So he's going to reveal it to us. Then Jesus completes the law by living it for us, that none of us can live the law out in and of ourselves. So Jesus comes and lives it in our place for us so that he could provide for us what we need, which is his righteousness. And then when we receive the life that he has lived for us, his righteousness, He then begins to fulfill the law in us by, through the Spirit, transforming how we live. And when you get into verse 20, Jesus makes a statement that helps us understand uh, just the enormous uh, truth that is found in this Sermon on the Mount. Look what he says in verse number 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter... The kingdom of heaven now when jesus says this here this would have shot the wheels off of everybody in the audience and think about what jesus is saying here unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the pharisees the scribes and the pharisees were the most righteous people on the planet Like they were the people that everyone looked at and said, if anyone's getting into heaven, if anyone's getting into the kingdom, it's gonna be the scribes and the Pharisees because there's nobody better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And then Jesus comes along and says, unless you're better than the best people on the planet, you're not getting in, which would left everybody thinking, then nobody's getting in. And that's the point Jesus is making. The point Jesus is making is that there is a righteousness, the standard of God is much higher than the standard of religion. That there's something more that you need that you can only find in me and you cannot find in religion. You need a righteousness that religion can't provide for you. And then Jesus goes on in the section we're gonna be looking at over the next few weeks to explain to us the righteousness that he's talking about. And he's gonna do something in the next few verses as we walk through of the next six or seven weeks. You'll see two phrases repeated. Jesus is gonna say, first of all, you heard that it was said. So what he's doing in here, and we'll come back to this in just a little bit, but when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he's summarizing for them the common belief of the day, the religious teaching of the day. And then the second phrase you're gonna hear Jesus say throughout the rest of this series is this, but I say to you, but I say to you. And then he is going to correct the false teaching or the, the lower standard that religion has set. So he's gonna say, you've heard that it's said, and then he's gonna come in and say, but I say to you. And he's gonna to explain to us what his righteousness looks like in everyday situations. He's gonna talk about our marriages. He's gonna talk about how we handle offenses that have come our way. He's gonna talk about how we manage our thoughts sexually about other people. He's gonna deal with how do we respond to our enemies and can I, uh, do I keep my word with those that I make promises to. He's gonna to touch almost every area of our life. Now here are two statements that I wanna give you as a summary. I want you to write these down. Some of you are going to get giddy because I am going to give you these two statements fast, and you are like, "Man, pastor's already done." This is only the introduction, all right? And so, I want to make sure as we dive into the series that there are two phrases that I want to give you that helps you understand the series and what we're going to be discovering as we walk through it. Here is statement number one: Jesus is doing something here. Jesus is describing, and these verses we will be unpacking. Jesus is describing both the righteousness He provides for us by His grace and produces in us through his spirit. So what Jesus is gonna be doing is saying, listen, when I say that there's a righteousness that has to be greater than the scribes and Pharisees, I'm gonna show you the type of righteousness that I'm gonna provide for you, and it's gonna be given to you. It's not gonna be something you earn. It's not gonna be something you live up to. It's gonna be something given to you from me because of my grace. I'm gonna provide it for you. You don't have it, but you're gonna find it in me. And then he's gonna talk about the righteousness that he produces in us, through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we call sanctification. So what Jesus is doing here, he is elevating the standard and helping us understand the true nature of what is demanded of all of us. Jesus is simply saying, listen, unless your righteousness surpasses the standards of religion, it's not enough. And what he has come to do is to give us a righteousness that exceeds that. It is his righteousness. You see, listen, religion, check this out, can only deal with our deeds, but Jesus came to deal with our desires. Religion can only modify our behavior, but Jesus came to change our disposition on the inside that transforms us on the outside. And that's what we need. We need a righteousness that goes beyond just the fruit of our decisions. We need something that addresses the root, that causes the decisions in our life. And Jesus is saying, you don't possess that, but I'm gonna give it to you. And then I'm also going to send my spirit to live inside of you so that now this righteousness that you have begins to become a reality in how you live. So eyes right here, just for a second. You say, we use the word sanctification a lot in church. And most of us don't know what that word means. Sanctification is simply this, now check this out. It is the righteousness that you have already been given in Christ freely by his grace being manifested and how you live by his strength. So it is the perfection of Jesus that I've already been given. I have it, I possess it. I didn't earn it, it's been imputed to me. And now through the work of the Holy Spirit, this righteousness that I possess is now working itself out in my life so that what I'm clothed in becomes how I live. Are you with me? And this is what Jesus is gonna be showing us. How does his righteousness look in everyday life? How does his righteousness look in everyday life? Here's the second statement I want you to get. Uh, Jesus is expressing the authority of his word over every area of my life. He is expressing his absolute authority over every area of our life. Now go back to those two phrases. Now Jesus is gonna say, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. And then he's gonna quote, whatever the interpretation of the scriptures were of the day. And so Jesus is going to say, hey, you heard it was said from preacher so-and-so. You heard it was said from the philosopher. You've heard from it said from your mammy or your pappy. Or your, you've heard that it was said from your friend. You've heard it was said on the podcast. He's going to address the common thoughts and the ideas of the day. And then he's going to come behind that and say, but I say to you. Now, I love this. He says, "I know that in conventional wisdom, and in your podcasting, and your favorite preacher, and what your mama said, and what your daddy said, I know that there are things that you have heard that it was said." And then he's going to follow that and say, "But I say to you, this is a way for Jesus to insert His authority in our life." I love what Pastor Brian Luritt says. He says, "Jesus is such a bad man that he quotes himself." When he says, "You've heard that it is said," he's not correcting the scriptures. He is correcting the misinterpretation of the scriptures when he says, but I say he is helping us see clearly what his word says about whatever it is he's about to say. And why is Jesus doing that? He wants us to understand that kingdom citizens don't live by what it is said in culture, in the world, and our favorite preachers. What matters is not what we think or what we've heard. What matters is what Jesus says. He has absolute authority. Now I love this because when we get into this, Jesus is going to start weeding around in areas we don't want him weeding around in. Now, can I tell you, you're going to feel like, do this series is going to be the funnest series ever, ever because you're going to be squirming on some Sundays because Jesus is going to be rooting around in areas of your life that you're like, nobody gets access to that. So listen to me. When Jesus says, but I say to you, he is saying, I have authority, and nothing in your life is off limits. So he's going to talk about how you're doing with anger. How's your marriage? Hey, those thoughts that you have about other person that you're not married to, let's talk about that. Hey, that, that person who is just your enemy and your rival, and you've got all these feelings toward them, and you're scheming on how you're going to, I'm going to get right in the middle of that. Hey, when you say you're going to do something, are you a person that does it? or Are you a liar? So Jesus is going to get all up in our business through this series. I hope you're ready for it. Why is he going to do this? Because he's revealing a righteousness that he provides for us and now is producing in us. And he is expressing his absolute authority over every area of our life. And we open our hearts and we say, yes, King, speak to us because we belong to him. Amen? So let's get after it. Let's look at the first one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. If you're there, say, I'm there. Let's talk about this first issue. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, authority that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell of fire. If you are offering your gift at the altar, therefore, if you're offering your guilt, a gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge of the guard, and you be put in the prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. Now, Jesus's first example of what his righteousness looks like in our life, he begins by talking about murder. Now, I know when I say that, everyone in the room drops your shoulders. You're like, I'm off the hook. I haven't killed anybody since last year. I'm good. But Jesus is going to talk about murder by really not talking about murder. Murder is the act of killing someone physically. But Jesus isn't going to let us off the hook that easily. He's going to deal with not the act of murder, but he's going to press into the heart and talk about What fuels murder, the the issue with murder is not simply what we do with the act of our hands, but rather it is the attitude of our hearts. See, the issue of murder isn't just something we do, it is something we feel and it's on the inside of us. And so Jesus is gonna give a righteousness that surpasses the law by going beyond the external to get in the core of our hearts. See, most of us, religion only wants to deal with the outside. And Jesus compares that life to a, a, a grave. He's like, hey, you got, the lawn is manicured and you got beautiful flowers and a beautiful headstone. So you've got uh, uh, good flowers at the grave, you got a beautiful headset, uh, headstone at uh, the grave, but inside the grave, there's still a dead person. And Jesus, this is a way for Jesus to say, I didn't come to landscape your graveyard. I came to raise the dead. So he's going to go beyond the act of murder. This is what one theologian said. Joseph Pennington says this. He says to fulfill all righteousness and to have a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, disciples must face the issue of the inner person, not committing. The physical act of murder is good and right. Of course, but it is not the true litmus test of piety and alignment with God's nature, will and coming kingdom. Examining one's attitude and speech are just as important as refraining from homicidal violence. So Jesus is going to get beneath the surface from the act of murder and deal with the condition of the heart that leads to murder. So it's like this. How many of you have heard uh, people talk about the uh, icebergs? Did some research this week, and according to scientists, I don't know how they get all these facts, but they, they tell us that when you see an iceberg... The part that you see above the surface of the water is only about 9% of what is out there floating. Which means that 91% of the iceberg, the largest and most dangerous part of the iceberg is not the 9% you see at the surface. It's the 91% that's below the surface that no one else sees. And in essence, this is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, I, I'm not gonna make it easy for you. I understand the tip of the iceberg, murder. And everybody can clearly see that that's wrong. But the issue is not the tip of the iceberg. The issue is the 91% of what's happening underneath the surface that's really the danger. And so here's what Jesus is gonna do. So some of us were like, man, I've never committed murder, but what about the 91% below the surface? What about that? And so Jesus is going to jump right in the middle of this. And listen, we desperately need to talk about this. We are living in a world that is growing more and more and more angry. Are you with me? I mean, we're we're seeing it this, this, this past summer, all kinds of anger filling the streets, filling our homes, filling our churches, filling our screens as we type messages to get our viewpoint heard. This past week we see all anger filling our capital and our streets and our news stations and in our homes and in our churches we're in an angry culture we're an angry people and listen let's not talk about the anger out there let's talk about the anger in here I mean we're just we're we're, we're at a boiling point we're at any moment, we're like a volcano that could just erupt because we're so angry. I was driving the other day, a couple of weeks ago, we were heading to Arkansas, um, uh, riding for New Year's for, for Christmas with my in-laws. And, and uh, I got on the interstate, I-30, left a ball game, and I was just talking with the family, going a little over the speed limit, but kind of just staying in that that sweet spot of of traffic, and and we're driving, and, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this big diesel, you know, four wheel drive pickup comes beside me, and they're revving and honking their horn, and this lady is yelling, and then she cuts me off, going like 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 driving so erratic, gets in front of me. When I get up to a diesel, slams on her brakes. I'm talking about almost dead stop in the interstate. I slam on my brakes. I'm like, what in the world is going on? And then she does the whole pin me in between the diesels for like, like six miles. And the whole time I can see her in the truck, she's screaming. I'm like, there's somebody in the truck. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's a domestic issue. I don't think it's me. I'm not certain. And then she speeds up and I kind of pass her. And then a few minutes later, she does it again for about 15 minutes. She is going bonkers on me. And then I know it's directed toward me. And how do I know that? Because the last time she passed me, she did sign language and apparently I'm number one. (laughs) And and so I'm watching this woman and I'm hearing my son say, dad, do it back. Dad, do it back. (laughs) My 9% of the iceberg did not surface, but I'm telling you what was happening below the surface. <laughs> We've lost our mind. This, is, this really summarizes culture for us. In our homes, our war zones, our hearts are so full of malice and bitterness and anger and frustration, and it's aimed everywhere. And listen, I, I feel it. I had to confess to somebody this week that, man, I just feel like I'm so, there's just this pent-up frustration in my heart. It's been growing for the last year. And I, I do really good at keeping it all below the surface for the most part, but then there's those moments where my wife just says something or my kids do something that it's really not that big of a deal and I just fly off the handle, why? why and, and the question I ask that lady when she's driving, I'm thinking to myself, why so angry? And that's the same question I have to ask myself. Why so angry? What's happening beneath the surface, below what everybody can see in my own heart? What's happening in your heart? Jesus wants to confront this and deal with this because this is the root of murder. So let's just talk about anger for a few minutes, okay? Let me start with this. There is a difference between, there are two really types of anger that we walk in. There is righteous anger and then there is unrighteous anger. There is anger that's appropriate, and then there's anger that's not appropriate. And then even in the confines of righteous anger, there's an unrighteous way that you can handle unrighteous anger. But not all anger is wrong. Not all anger is sinful. And in fact, if you read the Bible, you'll see times where God is angry. He's angry. Jesus in the gospels, where there were moments where he was angry. And so we know that God is perfect. We know that Jesus is perfectly righteous and God at times was angry and Jesus at times is angry. Then we've got to come to the conclusion that not all anger is sinful. There is such thing as righteous anger, anger that's appropriate. In fact, Ephesians chapter four, verse 26 says this. Paul writes this. He says, be angry, but do not sin Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So it says, be be angry. So there's an appropriate time for anger, but in the midst of that anger, don't sin. So what is anger? Let me give you a definition I think is really great. Gary Chapman, a great author, wrote five love languages. Here's his definition of anger. I think it's really good. He says, anger then is the emotion that arises whenever we encounter, now listen to this phrase, what we perceive, important word, Perceived to be wrong, the emotional, psychological, and cognitive dimensions of anger leap to the front burner of our experience when we encounter injustice. Pastor Brian Laritz kind of expounds upon this definition, and he, he summarizes it like this. He says, anger, then, is a gift modeled and designed by God to motivate you and I to take positive action when we encounter injustice. So there are appropriate times when there are injustices that we should be angry. Listen, to not be angry over the things that makes God angry is to be indifferent toward the things that Jesus cares about. Are you with me? So to not show anger over things that God is angry about is to show indifference toward the things that matter to God. So when we have issues like injustice, racism, abortion, human trafficking, the the abuse of power, oppression, these are things that God gets very angry about and therefore we should be very angry about them. There should be a righteous anger about these things. To not be angry over these things is to be indifferent. However, in the midst of the righteous anger, we must react righteously to the righteous anger. So in other words, you might have righteous anger that you act unrighteously with. So to be angry over the extermination of a human life in the womb is okay to seek to harm someone in the abortion profession would be to act in an unrighteous way to a righteous anger. Are you with me? So there's an appropriate response that we should have as believers to righteous anger that we have. So it's okay to feel angry. And here's the thing we've got to remember. Check this out. Listen to this. We must not respond Sinfully to sin. We must not respond sinfully to sin. Oftentimes we justify our sinful responses to sin by excusing ourselves because of the sin we're responding to. But hear me say this a great pastor years ago made this statement, I'll never forget it. He says, If I'm wrong in how I'm right, then I am wrong even if I'm right. If I'm wrong in how I'm right, then I'm wrong even if I'm right. And much of what we're seeing in culture today is an unrighteous response to righteous anger. And we justify this because we feel like because we're angry over the right things that it must justify whatever means we express that anger. But that would be to walk in an unrighteous way. And so we've got to see it. We've got to see the difference. So there is a righteous anger, but there's also an unrighteous anger. An unrighteous anger. Now, something about Chapman's definition, I think we got to, we got to see. He says it's a response to, check this out, perceived Injustice. Perceived injustice, not everything that we believe is an injustice, that God is, must be angry about this, God is angry about. There are some things, check this out, that we perceive to be injustice that are just inconveniences, interruptions, or inappropriate actions that we should just simply get over and, and, and stop putting such a high stock in ourselves. Like there are things that we get mad about and we get all bent out of shape about it and we just justify, we're, we're fuming over it. At the end of the day, listen, it has really nothing to do with God. It is just an inconvenience. It is just an interruption. It's just somebody that gets in the way. Listen, check this out. In most cases, our anger isn't fueled by legitimate injustice, but rather by an overwhelming love of self that someone has interfered with or interrupted. Now look at me, we know that's true, right? I can't believe she would say that to me of all people. I know why they did that on purpose. She makes me late, he makes me late all the time because they don't care about what I care about. And we get so bent out of shape. Y'all giggling now because the Kool-Aid's getting stirred. I do all this work and nobody gives me credit. credit. I'm just angry over it. And we fume and we simmer. We get angry. This is our life. And we drink it up. And we dwell on it. And we chew on it. And we immerse ourselves in it. And at times, even when it's righteous anger that we feel, we express it in unrighteous behavior, Jesus wants to get to the bottom of this. And so here's what Jesus is going to do. He is going to show us three, and you're going to want to take notes here. He's going to show us three unrighteous responses to anger, three unrighteous responses to anger that I think every single one of us in this room have got to deal with and do deal with whether we do it well or not. Look what Jesus says here again in verse 22. He says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And everyone who says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, Now, check this out here. Jesus is dealing specifically with conflict within Christian relationships. Now, it applies to every relationship, but Jesus is gonna get to dealing with our enemies later on. But right now, he's gonna deal with people in our own family in our church, brothers and sisters in Christ. So he says, repeat several times here, brothers, brothers. This is a reference to relationships that we're in, not just general disruptions in relationships, but close relationships, people that we walk with and share life with. So he's gonna get very personal with us. Now, Now, check this out, don't miss this. Jesus is not specific about what type of anger we're dealing with here. We don't know whether the situations he's dealing with is righteous anger or unrighteous anger. In fact, let me go further. Jesus doesn't even tell us the circumstances that have caused the anger that he's going to deal with. So we don't know it's righteous anger he's going to deal with or, or, or unrighteous anger. We don't even know the situation. We don't even know the details. We don't know what they did or they didn't do to deserve this. You know why Jesus doesn't mention that? Because it doesn't matter. Jesus isn't interested in the issue as much as he is our response to whatever it is. Some of us must get hung up on the what happened versus the how we responded to the what happened. The what is irrelevant to Jesus in this context. He wants to deal with the heart of how we respond to anger when we experience it. So let me give you three statements here that Jesus gives here to help us understand. Three expressions of unrighteous anger. The first is this, we simmer. This is like going in stages, by the way, we simmer. Anger grows in our heart. Look what he says in 22. He says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry, that word's important there, with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now Jesus is describing, anger that is growing. This word anger is a, is a word, or oh, yizo, it's a, it's, a, it's a slow simmering. It's a smoldering feeling of anger over something that you refuse to let go of. It's a present passive, it's ongoing, so you're stewing over it, you're simmering, it's, it's smoldering in your heart. Now you're, you've been offended or there's been a, an, a, something that has happened that you disagree with, and now it is inside of you and you're getting madder and madder and madder, more and more angry, and you're just boiling on the inside. And the longer you get down the road, the more angry you become. That describe any of us? And we just simmer. And every time we think of them or see them or replay that conversation or that action in our mind, we just get more and more angry. Now here's how we cope with that. You ready for it? You know how we cope with simmering? Well, two ways. So here's what we do. We cover it with a smile or we cope with it in silence. We cover it with a smile. We are angry. That person's offended us and we get around them. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's great. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Hey, I know we talked the other day. Are we good? I just sense that you're a little disconnected. Oh no, man, I'm great. It's awesome. Love you. Prayed for you today. God would kill you, smite you down. All right, we're laughing, but is it true? or we're silent, cold shoulders, passive aggressive. I love love this. I want them to know that something's wrong without them hearing it from me. Look the other way when they look at you, avoid them, not answering the phone, simmer. And when we deal with the simmering anger growing in our heart with either covering it with a smile or coping with it with silence, here's what happens. The anger continues to grow and rise up in us. And with every offense, everything they do is now being scrutinized. Every word they say, every look they give, everything they post, every conversation, interaction, you're trying to find the offense. You're trying to find the issue. And here's what's happening. There's more and more and more of ingredients of conflict that are being put into the crockpot of bitterness that is stewing in our hearts. And it's absolutely destroying our lives. And here's what Paul says, Ephesians chapter four, verse 26. Notice the danger in this. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Now notice what he says here. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What is he saying there? Don't simmer. Now, why should we not simmer? Because when you simmer, you give a foothold to the enemy in your life. Some of you think you're just holding a grudge and you don't realize is that the grudge is holding you. That the enemy now has a stronghold in your life and you're trying to manage the stronghold rather than dealing with it. And that slow simmer of anger is growing a cancer inside of your heart that's destroying relationships, marriages falling apart, friendships being destroyed, relationships within the church, family members falling apart, all because of the slow simmering, growing anger and bitterness in our hearts that are not being dealt with. And Jesus says, this is a form of murder. It's a big deal. Here's number two, we slander. We move from simmering, anger's growing in my heart. Now slander, anger is spewing from my mouth. Now I'm gonna say something. Look what he says here in verse 22b. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. So now we move from simmering to slander. We, have, we now are assaulting them verbally through firing shots at them or behind their back. Jesus uses the word insults. It's the idea of verbally attacking someone. We want to hurt them by attacking their character, their reputation, even their value. We want to hurt them. And there's two lanes for this. This insult comes in two ways. We either take the direct approach and we use words that we know will hurt them. We say things to them and then we put it under this banner. Oh, I'm just keeping it real. Oh, I'm just going to give them peace of my mind. Oh, they had this coming and I'm going to tell them what I think. I'm going to tell them where to go. I'm going to tell them what to do when they get there. And then we just verbally assault them because we want to wound them deeply. We start lobbing grenades into their soul. Or we do this in a covert operation behind their back. And now we're gonna have everyone question them, their character, their integrity. So follow this, when we insult and we slander to the face, we want them to feel the pain that we feel. So we unleash our fury because we want them to feel what we feel. When we go through the back door, we want others to feel about them what we feel. Both are sinful. Slander. This is killing us in relationships today, is it not? This is a serious thing. It can cause great wounds and damage. Many of us in this room still carry scars of words that have been said to us because someone decided not to appropriately deal with their anger. We've had the outburst of people saying things that they just wish they could take back, but the words were out there. Psalm 140 tells us about this type of a person. Psalm 140 verse three says, they make their tongue sharp as a serpent's. And under their lips is the venom of asps. See, man, they're dangerous and their tongue is destructive and their words destroy. Some of us do this with outbursts of anger, saying things we shouldn't say. And it impacts. And by the way, do you realize that anger gives birth to anger? Anger begets anger. You get a pattern of being angry with people in your life. You're going to create angry people. Story one time of a pastor who was talking about this. He was at a private school and he was the pastor of the school. And the uh, a student one day called a teacher an ugly word, and a word he should never call any woman, especially as a kid to an adult. He's just angry. He says this, and he's in the office. The father gets pulled in, and the son is sitting there, and the dad is just, I mean, he's fuming. He's like, I don't know wh- who you are, where you think you're doing. You don't talk to a teacher. like You don't talk to a woman like that. I don't know, where did where, you get this from? I can't believe you said this. And the son looked at his father and said, from you, the way you talk to my mama. Why? Because anger begets anger. And this type of language hurts and wounds deeper than we can ever imagine. You know the old phrase, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words, what? Will never hurt you. That's a lie. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will kill me. Scripture says that the words have the power of life and death. We have the ability to build up or destroy with the words that we use. And so anger that leads to this type of eruption where we are now slandering, we are Overflowing with anger through our words, Jesus says, it's a form of murder. Which then leads us to the third level, which is slaughter. We move from slandering, anger growing in our hearts, to um, simmering, anger growing in our hearts, to slander, anger erupting from our mouth, to slaughter. Anger destroys the relationship. Look what he says in verse 22c. He says, whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, Jesus uses a term here, you fool. Now, we, we read that. That's a, the, the word fool there in the original language is where we get our English word moron. Now, when we think of that, we don't think, that's no big deal. We, we call that the person's acting foolish. That's no big deal in our culture. We call people a moron all the time. What's so significant about this? But understanding the context of this culture, this was a massive insult. This goes way beyond just insulting someone. You see, to call someone a fool in this particular day is to consider them godless. It is to refer to them among the wicked, among the pagans. Now remember the context. This is a relationship that's broken between brothers and sisters in Christ. And the reason this is a a, a declaration of referring to someone as wicked is because the scripture says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So therefore to call someone a fool is to call them godless. You're among the wicked. You're just like a pagan. I don't even consider you a brother or sister in Christ any longer. It is to completely disregard them and to break fellowship. It is the deepest wound and insult you could give to someone and it literally writes them off. You slaughter them with the relationship, in the relationship. And then Jesus says this the person who does this, this is serious. They deserve the fire of hell. You see, we minimize these things, we play it off. We only want to look at the tip of the iceberg. And God, I've never killed anybody. Listen, we may not have been guilty of the physical act of murder, but make no mistake, there is a body count of relationships all over this room. I told you Jesus is gonna stir your Kool-Aid. He's gonna get up in your business. We gotta let him he wants holiness and righteousness. He doesn't want the life of his believers to be defined by simmering, slandering, slaughtering anger. And it's not for any other reason. Listen, the heart of the command not to murder was not about the absence of murder. It was about the presence of flourishing relationships Because we know how to forgive and love and extend grace to one another. Jesus' commands are not about not doing something, it's about us experiencing something that's far greater. So, what do we do? If that's unrighteous anger, then, or unrighteous expression of anger, then how do we express anger in righteousness? How do we deal with this? What do we do as believers when we're angry or someone is angry at us? Glad you asked. Very quickly, I want to give you a couple of things to write down. I'll look back at your text in Matthew 5, verse 23. So what does it look like to deal with this in a righteous way? Notice what Jesus says in verse 23. So in light of this, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now this is a, we we miss it. We're gonna get to it in a minute. This is a massive statement Jesus says. Let me give you three things to write down. First is this, what do we do? How do we respond to righteous anger? First of all, you need to recognize that broken fellowship with others hinders our fellowship with God. You need to recognize that broken fellowship with others hinders our fellowship with God. Verse 23, he, he's, he's painting a picture here, and he says, hey, listen, if you're about to give your sacrifice and lay it before the altar, and, and then all of a sudden comes to your mind a person that you know you have a fallen out fellowship, that they're mad at you over something or you're mad at them, there's an issue. And in fact, this context, you know that somehow they're wounded and you haven't dealt with it. It's not that you're angry. It's just that you know they're angry. And he says, leave your gift there at the altar and go and reconcile and then come back and and give your gift and make your act of worship and express your love for the Lord. Now, that seems very easy because we think about it in our context. We think about, okay, man, in worship, I get convicted, I walk across the aisle. Hey, bro, we had an argument. Sorry about this. Hey, are we good? Let's pray together. And now I'm back in my seat. No, no, no. Jesus is talking to a group of believers in Galilee, 80 miles from Jerusalem. He's referring to the one trip a year that you get to go and lay your sacrifice before the priest for the day of atonement. Waited all year for this. You journeyed 80 miles. You stood in long lines. You prepared yourself spiritually. You get finally now in that place where you're about to lay your offering at the altar. And then you remember we didn't leave that on good terms. What do I do? Jesus says, Don't offer the sacrifice, walk 80 miles back. You find that brother or sister and you reconcile with them, and then you walk your journey back. And then you get back in line and then you present your sacrifice. Why? Because Jesus is not as interested in our sacrifice as much as he is our obedience. And when there are broken relationships in our life, an unresolved conflict that we've not dealt with an anger in someone's heart toward us or anger in our, and we know it and we don't reconcile. Listen, it hinders our worship. It corrupts the sacrifice. And we make these things such small things, but to God, they matter. He says, I don't don't want you to lay your sacrifices at the altar. I want you to be reconciled with your brother because the whole point of the sacrifice is grace and mercy and reconciliation. And you're making a mockery of this by living contently without reconciling relationships and without extending grace. How could you lay something at the altar desiring me to give you something if you're not willing to extend that to your brother? So forget this, go do that. And now before me, you can come pure and clean. This is why God tells Israel in Isaiah one, I'm tired of your worship services. I'm tired of your church gatherings. I'm tired of your sacrifices. I'm tired of hearing your prayers. I'm sticking my fingers in my ear and your sacrifices that are supposed to be so pleasing to my nostrils make me sick to my stomach. And I want you to stop it all Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Why? Because you have been relationally slaughtering one another. Wash your hands and pursue justice and reconciliation and then come back and worship me. This is why Peter warns husbands, listen to me. Peter warns husbands in 1 Peter 3, verse 7. He says, husbands, don't think that I'm going to hear God hears your prayers when you live and constantly mistreat your spouse. Why? Because when there's broken fellowship with others, it hinders our fellowship with God. So we need to see it this way. The reason some of you come in week in and week out to worship and you spend time in God's word and you feel like God is 90 miles away and you can't get near him and you feel like you come into service and you just don't sense him moving and you're just kind of dozing off and I don't even know why I'm here and God's not doing anything and my quiet time is really quiet and I don't even want to pray. It might be simply that you've got a lot of broken relationships that you need to resolve and your unwillingness to reconcile has quenched the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We got to recognize this. I'll tell you, this is, I'm guilty of this. The number of times that I've had to, I come to church on a Sunday morning and I've had to call my wife, text my wife, call one of my kids, text one of my kids just to say, hey guys, I got to get this right. We can talk about it when we get home, but I got to tell you, I'm sorry. I need, we, I did, I said something I shouldn't have. Let's, because there's such conviction of the Holy Spirit that couldn't worship, couldn't preach without doing that. A couple of weeks ago, I said some things to one of my kids that I just was rude. I, didn't, I shouldn't have said it. I was angry and said something, correcting them in an overcorrection, an outburst of anger. I just had a text say, baby girl, I'm sorry. I was wrong in the way I responded to that. I love you. I'm asking you to forgive me. Let me tell you, there was such a freedom in that because broken relationships hinder our fellowship with God. Here's number two. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leadership and pursue reconciliation. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leadership. So, like right now in this room, eyes right here for a second. You're thinking of somebody. You don't have to nod your head, you don't have to look at them. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. That's the picture that Jesus paints here. You traveled. All those miles and all those lines, and here you are, and you're there, and you're about to lay your sacrifice down, and all of a sudden you remember. What is that? It's a conviction of the Holy Spirit. What are you gonna do? Jesus, the next word was go. Leave the sacrifice and go. Present imperative, an ongoing command. Now, this moment, leave. Get after it. Don't wait. It's simple. When we sense the Spirit telling us something isn't right, we go, we reconcile, we, we, we make it right. We pursue that person. And this, I love this. This is an active pursuit of reconciliation. It's not passively hoping the phone rings. But if they'll call me, I'll do something about it. Maybe the Holy Spirit is gonna use you in their life. But if he's spoken to you, you've got a responsibility to obey him. Be sensitive to that. This is hard. This is hard for us to do because oftentimes we go, well, what about if they don't receive it? What if we can't be reconciled? What does that mean? Okay, so follow this. Reconciliation is not always possible to obtain, but it's always possible to pursue. Are you with me? It's not always possible to obtain. It's always possible to pursue. Now, I know that it takes two to have a healthy relationship. So Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 12. Listen to this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, live peaceably with all. And why is he saying if possible? live peaceably with all because sometimes it's not possible because the other person isn't willing or they may have passed away before reconciliation happened. That's why he says, if possible, now listen to this, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably. What is Paul saying here? Do your part. Do your part. It takes two to have a healthy relationship and the other party is not willing to have a healthy relationship and, and own their part or offer forgiveness. All you can do is pursue reconciliation and lay that at the feet of Jesus and let him deal with them. Be sensitive of the Holy Spirit, pursue reconciliation, do your part. Here's number three. Here it is, finally. Own your failure quickly and in humility extend grace. Own your failure quickly and in humility, extend grace. If this was not already emphasized, he's saying you're, you're there, you're giving your altar, your, your sacrifice at the altar and the Holy Spirit reminds you of that relationship. Go now immediately, get after it, pursue them and then come back. And then you get into verse 25. Look what he says here. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge of the guard and the guard put you in prison. Now, how do we get from the church house to the courthouse? I think Jesus is using this as a metaphor, reminding us that all of us are on our way to court and Jesus is the judge. That all of us are going before the judge. And what he is saying is this, is that you need to reconcile your relational debt quickly because you don't know when your appointed time to be in court is. And you need to settle all unreconciled relational debts immediately because time is of the essence. So what do we do? How do we do this? Well, you own your failures and your faults quickly. And then you extend grace and humility. You extend the grace that you've received. If I've got it from God and Jesus, and I need to give it to them. And so what do I do? I, I, I confess to them what I've done. And when they confess to me, or even they haven't, I'm gonna extend grace to them because grace and love covers a multitude of sins. Can I tell you this? The godliest, most spirit-filled phrase that could ever leave the heart and in the mouth of a believer. You ready for it? I am sorry. Will you forgive me? I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Holy Spirit, At work words, second greatest phrase with the first, I forgive you, I forgive you, no really, completely, I forgive you, powerful, and this is what Jesus is after. That we would be quick by the power of the Holy Spirit to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? And then, humbly, when they confess, or if they even don't confess, I forgive you and forgive in our heart, forgive verbally, free them from the debt that they owe you because of a decision they made or words they said. Oh, that it would be said of us in our marriages. In this room, there are marriages being destroyed because of simmering anger, maybe some with slandering anger, some slaughtering anger. Well, I think marriage counseling is powerful, and I think there's a lot of great books to read and a lot of great seminars to go to to learn how to figure this thing out. Husband and wife, listen to me. I'm going to tell you the two phrases that would transform your marriage today. I was wrong, and I'm sorry. I forgive you. Some of you have falling out with kids, relatives, family members, and there's a simmering anger in your heart. Maybe there's even words that are now being expressed. Maybe you have just said, I'm done. I'm not talking to him. No Christmas gatherings, no Thanksgiving gatherings. I'm done. Not getting the invitation to the grandkids' birthday parties. We're done, finished. We've murdered the relationship. I am sorry. I forgive. In this church, there are broken friendships, anger that's been building up. Maybe the person doesn't even know that the friendship is in jeopardy because you've been simmering so long. Can we talk? I'm sorry. I forgive you a sense that maybe one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit is not working as freely in our congregation is what I believe he wants to. We have become an angry people. We are angry at government. We are angry at media. We are angry at culture. We are angry in our homes. We are angry at church. And how can fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring. And we gorge ourselves with the arrogance and the fury of the world, filling our minds and our hearts with all the rhetoric of the world. And we're wondering, why are we so angry? The spirit of God cannot occupy the same space as bitterness. God, help us. Release us. Free us from the sin of anger. You know why? It's killing us. You know what I'm thankful for? Jesus. Though he was angry, he gave me grace. Though I deserve his fury, he washed over my sins. Therefore, if you've never received that, start with your anger by receiving the grace of Jesus. Come a follower of his, come a child of his, and then go give that grace to somebody else. Father, I love you. I thank you, Lord, as we leave this place this morning that your word has spoken to us, free us now, help us to walk in freedom that's only found in you, the freedom of forgiveness. Freedom from anger. Do this gospel work in us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.